The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm here with... uh, on the phone, Dr. Fred Kurtz. Are you there, Dr. Fred? I'm here. Great. And one of my regular guests, David Rudy, certified financial planner professional with Rudy Wealth Management. Uh, I don't think there'll be a shortage of things to talk about today, but i first like to say how sorry I was to hear about Jim Turpin. Um, I tried to send Brian a text yesterday because I was about your age, David. Let's see, you're what, 31-ish? Yep. Yeah, I was about 31 when I approached... Jim Turpin, <laughs> who was probably about my age uh, back then, and uh, suggested that he let us do a radio show. And uh, lo and behold, he allowed that. And, uh, you know, it's probably a brave act uh, in, in his regard. I mean, we weren't a proven commodity. Um, we had a few people vouch for us, but still um, wasn't part of the regular programming per se. And he allowed it. And 30-some-odd years later, here we are. And, uh, of course, having a radio show in your hometown is a blessing. Uh, it could be a curse, too, but it's really a blessing to a firm like ours and our family company. It still continues where a good, a good number of my clients over the years have been a result of being on the radio show for so many years. So Jim Turpin, like so many other people yesterday, talked about how he had an impact in their life and career, but, you know, more importantly, life. Uh, I, I was just one more recipient uh, to the kindness of a great, great man, and uh, boy, I was really sorry to hear that. So my thoughts are with Jim and everybody who was very close to Jim, and so I wanted to start out with that because, you know, you have to be grateful when good things happen to you in life, and I think you have to take the bad things as grateful, too, in some ways, because that's, you know, we learn through pain, uh, but certainly I was fortuitous for a young soul like me at about your age, day 31 <laughs> or 32 at the time, to be able to do that. And uh, so, be with that. Fred, well, uh, you know, I know we talk about inflation a lot, but heck, we haven't really had to since the mid-60s going into the early 80s. And now when you start to hear headlines, you know, highest rate in 40 years, 8.5% print for the CPI, it certainly gets people's attention. And uh, boy, you know, what's what's your, just kind of your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts have changed. Uh, People, if they uh, think back uh, six months ago, I was fairly uh, sanguine about the problem of inflation. I thought it was a temporary kind of thing. And once the uh, supply chain issues worked themselves out, and once we got back to a more normal situation with the the COVID uh, crisis, uh, prices would moderate, but I, I was wrong. And it, it turns out I think there's much more um, kind of uh, embedded uh, issues that are going to lead to uh, some inflationary problems unless something is done about them. And those embedded problems are one, we had a, a long period of, of zero interest rates, uh, allowing people to make purchases, homes, things of that sort that uh, otherwise might not have, done, have been done. And in addition to that, we had this huge infusion of spending from the federal government. So a combination of almost zero interest rates and uh, a large amount of spending. And in fact, the economy uh, didn't dip down that much. So it wasn't like there was a serious uh, recession where things were really terrible and we spent a lot of money. People had money, they were willing to spend it. And on top of that, we had the infusion of all this uh, demand. So again, we're in a situation now where we have uh, inflationary activity underway. Uh, there's a lot of expenditures uh, of uh, money to be expended by people. So the question is, what do we do about it? <clears throat> and uh, again, as I said, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit less optimistic than I was um, a few months ago when the, the Fed and the, um, and the um, uh, government can rein things in in a way that will uh, stop inflation and at the same time not cause a downturn in the economy. So again, I've gone from 
relatively optimistic to somewhat pessimistic at this point. If there's any good news, it's that uh, if there is a downturn, it's going to be more of a traditional kind. The last two uh, downturns we've had have been unusual. Uh, obviously, the, the COVID situation was a maybe less than a century kind of situation, and, and that was not caused by the economy being weak. It was caused by the COVID crisis making the economy weak. And the second one, going back to 2007 to 2009, was a financial crisis, which is, again, maybe not once in a century, but maybe once in 50 years, and that obviously caused uh, considerable kinds of disruption. So to, to get things in perspective, we're probably talking about more of a traditional kind of post-war uh, recession, a recession which is, in a sense, caused, but caused on purpose by the Federal Reserve trying to uh, restrain prices. So now the, the, the fine-tuning issue, the soft landing issue is, can the uh, Fed orchestrate things where we reduce the amount of inflation without causing a, a reduction in the uh, overall level of output? And that's really an open question right now. So again, uh, I've gone from uh, being pretty optimistic to slightly negative right now. Yeah, I probably share that. Um, it, I would, uh, you know, whether we have a recession or not, it seems like the only way you tame inflation is by throwing us into one, historically. But uh, I also think if we do get into a recession, it's probably pretty good ways away. And the reason I say that is because basically, I, I like I focus on real interest rates. For you know, real means inflation adjusted, and you see basically if you look at a five-year Treasury inflation protected security, it's kind of the market's guess of where the Fed. Federal Reserve, Fed funds are going to be and what the monetary policy is going to be over the next five years. And if you look at real Fed funds rates, you're probably at minus 6% at best, maybe minus 7. Right. And so we have very negative real interest rates and everybody's getting uptight. The fact that we, and so it, it also suggests to me that contrary to what everybody's saying about an inverted yield curve, which means short term treasury securities on a nominal basis are coming pretty close to having a higher, and in some cases d do have a higher yield than longer-term bonds. That's, you know, the inversion. We typically expect longer-term bonds to have a greater yield and better payoff than short-term bonds because they're riskier. Uh, but I think they're missing the boat on that one because you also need sort of high real interest rates. And right now we have really low uh, negative, you know, negative real interest rates. So it suggests to me that the Fed has a long way to go before it's tight which also suggests to me then that we're just a little less loose than we were maybe a month ago, but it certainly suggests to me, of course, anything can happen, that probably a lot of the headlines of this concern about an imminent recession may be off base because the economy's still strong. People still seem to want to spend, even in the face of inflation. And at the same time, we have a Federal Reserve that's it's already announced it's going to be very gradual uh, you know, to, to get interest rates up. And that's that just suggests that interest rates are still pretty low, so it, it still encourages borrowing, and it makes sense if inflation's basically the Fed saying we're going to take a while to cure inflation. It just makes more sense to borrow and buy still. So I think that uh, probably, ex to me, uh, I'm a little more pessimistic because that suggests to me, even their policy suggests to me that this gradual approach must mean they think the economy right, is I too think fragile. Yeah, I think uh, the, the thing we haven't talked about is the political uh, wild card. Uh, I don't think the Federal Reserve wants to clamp down in, in a very uh, uh, kind of uh, overt way right now, uh, given the, the elections coming up. So they probably part of their reason for the gradualism is to uh, avoid the kind of political issues would arise if they did it uh, quickly and maybe uh, push the economy uh, quicker into either, either a, a slowdown or a recession. So. Again, the, the good news in the short term, I guess, is it's probably not going to take effect. The longer term, again, has the, the same problems. Yeah. I think that the, if there's any, any good news in the uh, pessimism, uh, a recession uh, this time is probably going to be more like the one in 2000, uh, where it was hardly even noticeable if you didn't have right. uh, uh, your, your uh, years out, you probably wouldn't even know of a recession. Uh, employment didn't uh, go down by very much. Not much happened except the stock market went down a little bit. So I think this would be more of a traditional uh, downturn that, that's associated with Fed policy as opposed to uh, some kind of overt outside kind of uh, strike. I think that combined, I think you're right, Fred, uh, with basically corporate balance sheets stronger than ever. Uh, 
uh, I can't even go back to when corporate balance sheets were stronger and really the American household balance sheet. Now, I know everybody's going to say, well, I, there's still a lot of problems, but in the aggregate, the American uh, household's balance sheets are in best shape they've been in a long, long time. So even if we head into a recession, it suggests to me at the same time, kind of like you, that you know maybe for a lot of people it's not all that <coughs> noticeable. Uh, certainly inflation's noticeable to people. Um, uh, you know, we hear about it every day, not so much from clients, uh, oddly enough, but just in general speaking with people, uh, out and about, you know, inflation. Well, you know, we have a, David and I and, and family, we own a second home in Minnesota. We have to put a new heating and air conditioning system in. And of course I, pro, uh, procrastinated. We were going to do it in the fall and now it's about 20% higher, uh, to do it here in the next month. And so it's real. I mean, you're, you're talking in terms of uh, maybe a couple thousand dollars more than it would have been if we would have done it six months ago. So it's real. I know that's anecdotal and doesn't mean all that much, but I, I think everywhere I look. Uh, now, one thing I did notice traveling through Wisconsin, gasoline, I paid $3.58. As soon as I drove into Illinois, it was $4.29. <laughs> right. I think there's probably some well, taxation there. I think that, uh, yeah, we have to realize that there's, there's not a whole lot the uh, – the federal government can do to ease the pain. I mean, they're not going to give out uh, uh, $500 a person to deal with inflation because that would make it even worse. So uh, the, the pain is that to rein it in, things have to happen. And some of those things are not going to be very pleasant. And so the, high, uh, the only thing the, Fed, uh, the federal government might do is to release money, uh, oil from the reserves and try yeah. to buffer it a little bit. But, but yep. getting rid of taxes, things of that sort, is really counterproductive when you're trying to deal with inflation. And, and really, inflation is, in a sense, a tax, isn't it, Fred? On people. Sure. It's a tax on some people. Uh, I, I, on, if you're a, a um, borrower, it may not be, but for other people it is. I, I think to me it suggests that this inequality of peop- that people point out is this only going to get worse. Uh, that's just my gut feeling. It's, you know, wealthy people. Uh, yeah, they'll have some impact on inflation, but they'll probably turn it on its heads and, and turn it into a positive. And the working class people uh, and the working poor are the ones that are really taking it on the chin. And it's real and it's real pain. And uh, to me, it's all a matter of bad policy. And uh, though people will call and yell at me for that. But yeah. I didn't say specific well, policies, I but, but I think it's bad policy. Well, I think it's it, it maybe bad policy in retrospect, but if you go back uh, two years, uh, who would have expected things to happen the way they did? So I think the the idea was in the um, beginning of the COVID crisis, if we're going to make a mistake, uh, make a mistake on the side of being too aggressive, trying sure. to, to uh, quell the, the problem. And they obviously followed that rule and ended up they were too aggressive. But who knew at the time? So again, if you had the choice between a depression, having, uh, yeah. a, a huge, uh, depression versus uh, what we have now, uh, that's not uh, not a terrible bargain. I think that's fair, and I, and I think, quite frankly, maybe I'm being hypocritical because I I felt that way when they were laying out these policies. I, f- I felt like if they're going to do something, do it big. Uh, but then they they to me, the, if there's any criticism, right. is okay. They didn't know when to take the foot off the gas. I mean, uh, you know, right. it was clear that we were starting to come up. You know, there's just so when I say bad policy, I, I think it was, I think initially. Um, you know, it probably made sense to throw not only the kitchen sink in, but a second kitchen sink, because I think much like 2008, 2009, I think we were a lot closer to tipping over into a deflationary depression than people realize. And I think you have to do everything you can. So in all fairness, I, I think that's a good point, Fred. Uh, it's easy to armchair quarterback looking back uh, for sure. Um, but inflation's a real risk to retirees, Dave. Um, I saw a poll the other day and I can't remember who did it, but they ask retirees uh, that if you retire at age 65 with an annual retirement income of 60000 and inflation is 3% a year, how much annual income will you need in 10 years? Sounds like an old math test, right? <laughs> I get nervous just reading the darn question. Only 26% of respondents correctly estimated 80000 is the amount of annual income they would need in 10 years in order to maintain their standard of living at 3% annual inflation. 30% of the estimates were on the high side and 45 on the low side. Uh, including 15%. But it's real. When you start thinking about that, if you start out in retirement today at $60,000, that's what makes my world work. 
and you think just at trend line inflation, forget about this three times headline inflation almost, uh, but headline inflation, that, that's very real and it's something that retirees really need to think about is not my income this year, but in 10 years and in 15, 20, and 30 years because it just stacks up. And I think that's, I think it's probably one of the biggest obstacles to a successful retirement is how we're going to deal with inflation. Well, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make who err to the side of being excessively conservative with their money as far as how they invest it. You know, I, I, you get the people that get really nervous about putting any money in the stock market or in things that appreciate, so like equity assets, whether it's stock market, real estate, et cetera, uh, just because they're wor worried about the short-term declines. Then they end up putting all their money in money markets or money market accounts or CDs or things that are incredibly stable. And in the short run, they're thinking, okay, well, this is fine. I can sustain my standard of living. And they might even do simple math of here's how much money I have. Here's how much I'm spending. Let's divide by, you know, 20 years or 30 years. Exactly. And, and I, I should be good. But they forget about the fact that, yeah, if they're living on $60,000 a year now, 20 years from now, 60000 yeah. isn't going to be enough probably to run enough. their world yeah. unless they substantially reduce their their lifestyle. And I think that's that's the trap that people fall into is they forget about that and they think, oh, I'm, I'm in retirement. They worry so much about the immediate short-term declines and what they think of as a risk, and they forget about the long-term risk because inflation you don't notice so much in a typical year or two or three years. But over a lifetime, it makes a huge difference. It's really that trade-off between you, know, you choose to be sleep and be secure on the front end of retirement, or do you want to be ha have good sleep and security on the back end of retirement? It's very different, you know. It's it, and it's probably some combination. But you know, yeah, you can put all your money in CDs, and you, you'll sleep like a baby tonight. Uh, but maybe when you're in your mid 80s or upper 80s, you're going to have face financial insecurity because now you know, that the value of that money has been degraded over time significantly. And you've talked about it, and I don't know if you got this from someone else, but it's kind I got of a, everything a trade, from somebody else. Today. A trade-off between, you know, the risk of failing fast and right. the, the risk of failing slowly. And I think when you're retired and you're pulling money out of your account, for most people, if you're 100% stock and you're taking a, a, a decent withdrawal rate from your investment portfolio, you run the risk of failing fast if you get a Great Depression outlier scenario. Right. Not super high likelihood, but it could happen, you know. And if it happens, it changes your life. Exactly. Um, but the flip side of that is if you go the opposite extreme and you have none of your money in equity securities like stocks or stock mutual funds, ETFs, um, you run the risk of failing slowly, just slowly depleting your assets, or even if you don't deplete your assets, not being able to maintain your standard of living by actually increasing the income that your portfolio is providing over time. So you do, you have to balance those risks. And that's why if you look at all the retirement research that's been done, and they basically look at different ways of doing it, but just historical periods and what investment allocation maximizes how much you can safely withdraw from an investment portfolio over, you know, any block of time. But typically, you know, you'll see in the research, people use like 30 years because they're... Which isn't an unusual uh, time frame for somebody retiring in their early 60s. They could easily expect one of the two to live for three decades. Exactly. And so the results are going to differ. I mean, if you're already 90 years old, <laughs> you know, that's going to have different results. But if you take someone who is retiring in their 60s, generally you see that sweet spot in terms of an investment allocation between somewhere around like, th it depends what you look at, but 30 to 40% stock and probably on the high side, 80% stock. And then obviously the other portion being bonds or stable investments. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot where you see, you know, if you hear of the 4% withdrawal rule, which just states you can start out withdrawing about 4% of your portfolio adjusted for inflation each year. And you should, historically speaking, in the, U the U.S., you'd be okay. That's kind of based on those middle-of-the-range investment allocations. The two extremes don't work. And the two extremes of being basically, uh, you know, 20%, 30, 20, 10%, 0% exposure to the great companies of America and the world, or as you call it, equity investments, and that could be real estate, stock, stock mutual funds, stock exchange traded funds, or, uh, or I guess, yes, so, you know, kind of staying out of those and putting more towards fixed income. 
versus if you get over really 70 or 80 percent now because it's so much fluctuation that you're putting your basically your retirement at risk in the event of a very small uh, 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 an event that has a small likelihood but if it happens it changes your life and and, and so somewhere kind of in that 40 to 70 percent if i if i could pick numbers or in yours 30 to 80 it's kind of like you know what if you want to be more towards the 60 or 70 or 80 percent side the benefits might be more money to your children or institutions you dearly love or it may also uh, end up providing you higher uh, an enhanced lifestyle in retirement versus if you stay towards the lower end of 30 or 40 percent you may be saying you know what i'll have less fluctuation maybe i'll capture less upside beyond what i hope to achieve in my retirement and maybe the kids won't inherit as much but for me that's my happy place but you kind of get outside it and you start running into trouble either with too much stock or too little stock. Right. And of course, there are exceptions to that. So obviously, again, if you're 90 years old, you probably don't have a 30-year time horizon. Uh, if you have a really short time horizon, then sure, you could probably get away with a 100% bond portfolio or all you know CDs, stable stuff, we'll call it. And if you're not withdrawing much from your portfolio at all, say it's you're just taking out the dividends from a 100% stock portfolio... Again, dividend income can decrease, so I guess there's that risk. But, you know, there are obviously exceptions. But for the vast majority of people, you're going to fall into that range where you need, you know, a portion of your money in stocks, a portion of your money in bonds. And, you know, you talk about failing fast and slow, but the way I kind of think of it just as we're talking about this is the bonds help you deal with the risk of short-term immediate declines in the stock market. And the stocks help you deal with the risk of inflation. So those are two two very different risks, and the two different investment vehicles really deal with each of those risks effectively. And isn't it interesting, though, as time cycles, you know, uh, those kind of trade places for being hated. Uh, right now, you know, over the past few years with interest rates low, and particularly now with interest rates increasing and bond prices declining temporarily and the stock market still not too far from an all, all-time high, there's this real... Uh, you know, feeling widely held that I sense that why why do we even own bonds? And then there's periods where, you know, after 2008, 2009, it's why do we even own stocks? And these they trade places. And that's what really messes people up psychologically. You know, there's this old belief and theory that people's risk appetite, I like to think of it as fluctuation appetite, changes throughout time. And it, as one asset class, we'll just use the two broad asset classes, the great companies of America and the world, which some people call the stock market. I like, and the reason I'm very deliberate about calling them the great companies of America and the world are these are income producing, product producing companies. You have ownership in companies. It's not a stock market, it's not a casino. And then you have fixed income producing investments like bonds and savings accounts and CDs. And, uh, you know, just trying to get that right mix. And there's, you're always going to be, there's, count on periodically there's going to be time you're going to wonder why you're in each one of them right now it's bonds and my feeling about bonds has always been because uh, most of our clients have some portion of their income in bonds which sounds contrary because if you listen to me enough which probably aren't that many people that do <laughs> uh, you know you'll hear me describe by describe bonds as something that has never produced wealth they're something that never really maintain wealth all that well unless you just reinvest the income. But for most people, you can't just reinvest the income or you don't have anything to spend if you're going to go 100% fixed income producing investments. And then was, so that would only naturally raise the question, well, why do we own 30% or 40% in bonds, particularly now? And, the, and my feeling has always been if – about every 10 years or so, there we seem to be getting some type of crisis and some type of pretty significant stock market debacle. Some might even say every five years, but somewhere in that five to 10-year window, there's going to be a time where the broad U.S. market's probably down 30% or more. And if bonds can keep you from making that big mistake of panicking out of those perfectly good securities, perfectly good companies of America and the world that are just temporarily on sale, then bonds, if they do that once every 10 years, bonds have produced the return you're hoping for. So I think of bonds more of that than itself being something that we're ever going to create wealth or maintain wealth in. Does that kind of, how do you view 
Yeah, lines. it's almost like it just helps the other portion of your portfolio do what it needs to do. Yeah, one so. helps you sleep yeah. and one helps you eat. That's kind of the way, the simple right. way I think about it. Yes, Fred. The other thing right now is especially uh, dining kind of choice because uh, typically in an in in inflationary situation, interest rates go up at least partially to compensate for higher uh, higher inflation levels. But right now, you have super low uh, right. rates of, uh, of interest on bonds and inflation much higher than that. So it, you're getting into, uh, as you said earlier, uh, uh, a kind of a obvious loss situation in the short run there. So, you have, so again, not that you shouldn't do it, but it's obviously a more difficult choice right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a horrible fixed income market. Okay, it's just it's 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 one of the it's it's starting out to be one of the worst, not the worst, but one of the worst, you know, fixed income markets. That is when I say that, I mean, hey, when interest rates are spiking up on the short end, which they have the 10 year treasury in the not too distant past was three quarters of a percent. Today, it's two and three quarters of a percent. So yields on short term securities driven by the Fed have well, actually driven more by the market. Uh, have really increased significantly, and even in short-term bonds, that temporarily depresses the price of bonds. So it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult investing environment. But that's why, and David and my guys uh, at the office, you, they see me probably. You probably hate how much you see me pouring over historical data and working with simulations. But when I'm trying to come up with uh, retirement planning tools, I'm always stress testing any theory against, well, how did it do if I retired in 1965 or 1966? Because over the first half of a 30-year retirement, your cost of living would have doubled. That was a very, it's probably the worst time to retire was prior to that period. And here, suddenly, 40 years later, well, 40 since it peaked in the early 80s, uh, here we are, uh, six you know, decades or so, and we're looking at sort of the same things, maybe potential stagflation. Uh, which means just the economy's not growing that much, but yet we have inflation, comp- economy stagnant, uh, and uh, you know it's it, it's a it's it's a difficult environment to invest in. So one of the things though that I took away from that, Dave, and when clients have been asking me this, and again I have to preface this with there are no facts about the future, so I don't know. Just because something has worked in the past doesn't automatically mean it's going to be your cure in the future. But if you look at, say, 1966 to 1982, the Dow went from 1,000 to 1,000, basically. And we, get, we had very high inflation. So if you look at the return on the broad U.S. market, it was basically 0%, okay, net of inflation. And if you look at a globally diversified portfolio, so there's two things I learned. Is one, during inflationary environments, it probably pays to have a little bit higher stock market exposure. That's one insulator, but we'll get into that maybe later. But from a diversification standpoint, I look back to that period and say, well, it wasn't a good period to be just in U.S. large cap stocks. It paid to be in U.S. small companies, small value, value companies. And really having a third like we do uh, of our portfolio, stock market portfolios, full time in the great companies of the world at the same time, not just the U.S., the return and again, I, I'm going to preface this with, I'm kind of generalizing at the moment, but I'm going to be really close. Uh, the return before inflation was about uh, 12% and net of inflation was about 6 but the return net of the S&P 500 was about 0 So you actually earned a respectable inflation-adjusted return by being broadly diversified, um, you know, the way we diversify our clients and have for 30-plus years, again, I don't know what that means, if that's going to be insulate us in the future or not, but it's certainly, there's two lessons I learned from that period. Probably pays to be a little higher exposure to stocks than bonds, and it really paid to be diversified, and we'll see what the future holds. But I have, a, I have this gut feeling, and we're already seeing it, where tech companies are getting hit really hard in the face of higher interest rates and inflation, and value strategies are producing pretty respectable returns. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, and it, I just, I don't know. Again, this is just like a hunch, and obviously we don't know. We're very clear about, you know, stating that we don't think we can predict future asset class returns, and we don't really think anyone else can do that either, especially relative to each other. But, you know, international stocks have lagged for such a long time. I do think a lot of people have given up on them. And I think that's kind of what happened with small cap and small cap value stocks within the U.S. 
about a year or so ago, and we saw how quickly that turned around. And that's kind of, I think, the one I, mistake that I could see people making, especially given, you know, wars going on, <laughs> you know, the war in Ukraine, people getting scared out of international stocks. It, that coupled plus, coupled with the fact that just international performance has been so much worse than the U.S. stock market for the last 10-plus years. All right. Yeah, honestly, it's been even longer than that. <laughs> um, I I wouldn't be surprised if we're about to find out why yeah. why you include international stocks in your investment portfolio. And, and what David's talking about is I have this old theory of when I get more than three people ask me uh, why we're in a certain asset class, I always get the feeling like, well, after three people in a row ask me that question, I think we're about to find out. And uh, it's just that... It's not so much a reversion to the mean. It's just that these asset classes dance at different tunes at different times, and that's precisely what you want until it's not working. But diversification is still working even when you wish it wouldn't. Yeah, and the example, the more recent example that you can look at where that played out was with U.S. in particular small cap value stocks. So that's small companies that also have low – they have different measures of value, but like price-to-earnings ratio is one that people can commonly think of or price-to-book ratios – one that's often used by investment strategies. Um, those had been on a 10-year period where they substantially underperformed the S&P 500, U.S. large company stocks. It was even longer than a full decade. Right. And historically, I mean, if you go all the way back to the 1920s, small cap value stocks have been essentially the best performing asset class and have outperformed the S&P 500 by you know, large three large. plus percent. And people were writing articles, and these were financial professionals, that the small cap value stocks are dead and the value premium's dead and all these things. And I jokingly said to one of my friends who's a financial advisor as well, I was like, now that people are writing all these articles, I'm telling you, it's about about to turn around in a big way. And what you found is I think think it really started right around in the bottom of March of 2020 – yeah. Small cap value stocks had the best six-month period ever relative to U.S. large cap growth stocks. So it's just funny. It's not just that things can change as far as which asset classes are performing better than the other. It's that they can change really quickly and in a huge magnitude. I mean, it can be dr- a drastic change. And uh, it, it even it was such a drastic six-month period about performance for small cap value stocks and I, I, I believe that as of right now, if you look back over like the last 10 years, small cap value stocks now have outperformed right. U.S. large cap. I was just going to say that. I've seen so many, so many times uh, where, pe- where an asset class, the returns are so fast and so lumpy that they can make up for 10 years of underperformance in a period of three to six months. Yes, Fred. And people often uh, make the decision to change at exactly the wrong time. Uh, my example is the 1990s. Uh, value stocks did very poorly then, and people who are value investors say, okay, it will turn around and turn around. And finally, in the late 90s, they say it's never going to turn around. They got out of value stocks, and all of a sudden, uh, what you said happened. Uh, so you, you, you can't really guess, and you don't want to have a strategy like a, a value strategy, stay with it for a long time, and then give up on it right before the, uh, the things change around. And I think that's what's tough with all of these things is that cycles can last so much longer than people ever expect. I mean, intuitively, like we do, a, I think, a really good job explaining up front to clients that, look, we own international stocks. There are going to be periods where they underperform the benchmarks you see on TV. We own small company stocks in the portfolio and value stocks in the portfolio. There will, you know, a lot of research has been done by, you know, academic professionals suggesting that in particular small companies and value companies should theoretically have a higher expected return, but there, there are extended periods where they will do worse. But I think even when you explain that to clients up front, when you're going through an actual 10 year period, it's very different actually living through 10 years than hearing from a financial advisor, look, there could be a 10-year period where these things underperform. It's different just hearing it or right. seeing it on paper versus literally living a decade of your life and actually earning lower returns because you invested in a certain asset class. And Fred can remember, you know, when I said the Dow went from 1,000 to 1,000 over a 17-year period, you know, and then there was articles, the death of equities, you know, the famous Newsweek magazine cover. You know, by that time, after a period like that, 
you know, where simple treasure, risk-free treasury bills perform a higher return than, uh, than the stock market, the broad U.S. market, that's, that's, that's too much to ask almost of any investor, let alone a 10-year period, but a 17-year period. And then the stock market went on to create the greatest bull market ever over the next you know 17 or 18 years i mean it made up for all of that pain and then some and and so often we yeah. see investors for, go ahead fred yeah I, I i that's a very vivid uh memory because that was 17 years of my first 17 years of actually making some money so uh, investing in a stock market yielded nothing during that period of time uh, fortunately i i was not uh aggressive enough to do anything i just let it ride and then all of a sudden, in 1982, things uh, changed around. So uh, doing nothing actually was a good strategy then. So I think, I don't know what you guys think, but I think if people don't, and it's going to sound like a barber giving advice, people get, should get a haircut. But I have spent thousands upon thousands of hours dissecting different periods of time when you could have retired historically. This one is shaping up and starting out much like the worst starting point for retirement. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it looks and tastes exactly like where we were in the mid-60s. And I can promise investors, if you go into the next, if if we get anything that plays out, you know, li- anything like it, you're going to darn well wish you had a really good financial plan to drive your retirement. Otherwise, you're operating in an environment where you could make irreversible mistakes you can get away with some things when you have disinflation over a 30-year period. That's a very kind period. It's very forgiving. Now that the great bond bull market appears to be over, of course, that's been announced so many times, but <laughs> it's certainly looking more like it now. Uh, I think we're heading into an era of investing that most people aren't used to and, and are not prepared to deal with a higher than typical and a much higher than typical inflation. If we were talking about 4% or 5% inflation for a period of time, I take that off the table. I'm not worried about that. I'm much more worried that this is could be a replay of the mid-60s in that 17- or 18-year period where, where it's very difficult to survive in retirement without a really good plan and a well-thought-out plan. Yeah, and I think the biggest question by far is – how will I know when I need to make an adjustment, particularly to my portfolio withdrawals? And how will I know how much of an adjustment to make? So when will I make adjustments and how much of an adjustment do, will I need to make at that time? Or even if there's an allocation shift, even if it's subtle, but very deliberate. Um, like I'm thinking of, you know, if this plays out much longer, I have to look at every one of our plans and suggest at some point, maybe we, you know, we're so cautious on the front end of retirement that I want to go back kind of inventory and say, hey, I want to make sure we're not being overly cautious in this type of environment. We're not talking about throwing caution to the wind. We might be talking about instead of being 40% stocks, you move to 50 or from 50 to 60. Increment like that. Um, But interestingly enough, even a 10% increment made a big difference in that inflationary period between the 60s and the late 70s, early 80s. And again, I'm going to say it because I have to say it every time. I don't know what the future looks like, but that was one of the lessons. Yeah. And then, you know, things people need to think about, too, is if you're following like a rule of thumb, like the 4% rule, basically the way they arrived at that is anything, any scenario where you didn't completely run out of money was considered successful. And if you look, they came up with that number. They basically said, well, what was the worst 30-year period in U.S. history for someone to be retired? And how much could you have withdrawn at the beginning? At the beginning, increase for inflation and not run out of money. Right. Most people would not be comfortable spending their portfolio down to one dollar. Right. Would, one, it would just make you a nervous wreck because who knows, you know, for a fact when you're going to die or what returns are going to be. So you don't want to run it that close. But two, like I said, most people would not like seeing their portfolio just get spent down over time. Not only that, it's I can make it's akin to going on a trip in a car with no mirrors and no brakes because you're not going to change the speed, you're not going to look at outside conditions at all to make any adjustments in your trip. And I think we're not criticizing the four percent rule. I think it's a decent guideline, but it's not a template. Right, and that's why I just harp on. It's so important to know when to make adjustments and not just necessarily follow these rules of thumb that you might read an article on Investopedia about. Because, again, most people, you know, the assumption is, one, that you have 30 years left. Two, that 
um, you know, it, returns aren't worse than we've ever experienced. That could theoretically happen. Of course. Um, and two, that you're willing to spend your portfolio down to essentially zero dollars. And most people are not comfortable with those things. So I think if you're if you are following just kind of a rule of thumb. You need to keep in mind that reality because I believe the worst 30-year period did start somewhere in the mid-60s. And so theoretically, if you were following that 4% rule in the 19 – it was 1966, yep. you said, so, you know, and you started in 1966. I mean, if we have theoretically exactly – played out like that. Exactly that same way, you're going to not run out of money, but you're going to get pretty darn close. You're going to see it. You're going to see it close. And the, and the other side of that 4% rule is most of the time you leave a bizarre amount of money to your kids. And that's typically not people's goals. They, most people love their children and don't mind if their children inherit a handsome bit. But they don't like the idea of a plan that says, oh, well, you know, you could either go broke or your kids could inherit $12 million. I mean, it's such a wide distribution, which is why we always say the 4% is a reasonable guideline if people are wondering, wondering how much can I spend in retirement and they have $500,000 portfolio. If I pluck 20,000 plus or minus a couple thousand out of the air, I'd say that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's uh, Paul, if there's uh, good news, if, uh, especially for people who are relying on social security, uh, that is pretty much uh, indexed for inflation. So if, if half of your income comes from uh, social security or to a lesser extent, if your income comes from, a state retirement system, you're getting either fully or partially compensated for inflation there, which means there's less pressure on your on your savings. I think I think uh, you're right, Fred, and I think for that reason, Social Security is uh, underloved. You know, when people think of a fifteen hundred dollar a month or a two thousand dollar a month, in their minds, it doesn't compute out to be you know anything that significant. But if you thought about how much money would I have to have in Treasury inflation protected securities to generate that inflation adjusted income, for a lot of people it would be in the millions. And that's what it really represents to me synthetically. Uh, so you're right that that is for, you know, some people are highly insulated, you know, for people where Social Security is the majority or a significant part of your retirement income or a pension that is largely indexed to inflation or somewhat indexed to inflation, it's certainly going to put a lot of wind to your back. It's also the reason that we, you, if you've listened to this show, we, we don't very often recommend that people go out and put a significant amount of their retirement funds into a fixed annuity that pays a, a living. I know there's all kinds of articles that are written every day about how it's almost uh, incompetent to not suggest that people do that but it's precisely these types of periods where, you know, if you have this fixed income and it's grinding down at six or seven or eight percent a year, I mean, for people on a fixed annuity income, they're going to, over the last year, they've lost eight and a half percent of purchasing power uh, out of that monthly check. So we're not saying they're bad or they're good or you shouldn't own them or you should own a hundred percent of them. We're just saying you have to think through all of these. Every investment that's included in a retirement portfolio or a client's portfolio should be there for a purpose. And people just need to understand the purpose and to make sure that if that's my purpose, is this the right vehicle? But inflation's, inflation's a real, is a real deal. And speaking of uh, average monthly Social Security benefit, when people are asked that, uh, they did a little better on that question. 40%, 42% correctly selecting 1500 as the average monthly benefit and 20% selecting 1,000. That means 62% of the people did not overestimate the average monthly. But you think about that, 1,500 doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot when Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, are, you're signing up for the next five years for a minus 1% return. So you'd have to have a huge amount of money uh, in that. And, uh, you know, Dave, one of the things that people especially after a good long period where the stock market's done really well, it's almost as if, well, why not have a higher exposure to stocks, maybe 80% or 90%. And I always come back to the analogy of, I think very few people understand that between September of 1929 and June or July of 1932, the broad U.S. stock market fell 85%. That, to me, is always the reason why you don't overload a retirement plan with too much exposure to the great companies of America and the world. And even though that event is probably, I don't know, Fred, you could tell me, but 
probably less than 1% chance of having a global depression. It's always a possibility. I remind people, well, it's probably about the equal chance of your house burning down in a catastrophic way, which is 0.3%, so three-tenths of 1% uh, chance. But it's for the same reason you pay for your fire insurance every year. Um, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I could handle an 85% return and it wouldn't change my life, then go for it. Be 100% stocks. Or if they said, I'm 90, Paul, but you know this money really isn't mine at the end. It's going to be my children and grandchildren and children I may not even meet. And it's going to be locked up along over their lifetimes, and they're going to be better. Then I have completely different. But for most people, taking two bite of an apple in the first five years or so of retirement in the stock market, why it's enticing, especially when bonds are producing probably negative returns also at the time. It's you know this, this is the it's kind of what you have to balance all the time with client discussions, isn't it? It is, and it you know I think it's tricky as a financial advisor because sometimes you I mean you know those things in the back of your head you know that it's probably prudent to <laughs> at least have you know a, a, some portion of your portfolio in, in bonds for the vast majority of situations. Like I said, obviously there are exceptions. You listed a couple examples. But then you know that probably we're going to have decent investment returns and probably the client's going to end up being <laughs> slightly disappointed that they didn't have a higher stock allocation. Even though that was the right decision, sometimes the way things end up turning out in reality or playing out in reality, it, it makes it feel like it was the wrong decision. In fact, when, when a new client, newly minted retiree comes to us, uh, and we might suggest that they only have 40 or 50% of their money in the stock market in the first at least five or six years of retirement, because we're trying to be, we, you know, we're worried about a big decline on the front end of retirement. Those are difficult to recover from. We know in our hearts the chance of that happening is really low. We know that, if anything, the clients are going to be mad at us and call us fatheads for not being 60 or 70 or 80 percent equity. We know that going in, that the odds are we would have been better off with a higher stock market exposure. But yet, because it's a risk we cannot afford to take, or most people cannot afford to take, we, we can't not send in our check to pay for our homeowner's insurance because it's not likely, you know, I, I know every year when I send them my 1000 or $1,500 that that's money out the door in an intrinsic way, but yet it's buying me something that I don't want to have my house burned down and have to replace it, you know, out of my pocket. That That's not something I choose to do. I, 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 for some reason, that analogy works in my brain. In that, I can't remember which book it was, but that, you know, that author, Nassim Taleb, yep, I think is yep. how it's pronounced. He wrote Fooled by Randomness and some other anti-fragile. In one of his books, he talked about his philosophy, whether this is right or wrong, is no matter how low the probability of some event is, if you literally could not survive that event, then you can't take that risk. Correct. And so, you know, an example in the financial world is kind of like that Great Depression scenario you painted. Okay, say it's... 0.01% likelihood of happening. But if it happens, you will be completely, you know, in poverty. Yeah. Well, then you shouldn't build a plan. You know what I mean? You just can't really afford to take that risk. But the problem with probabilities are if I say something is 80% likely, most people are just in their brains, that's 100%. Or if I say there's a 1% chance of this really horrible event to them, it suddenly becomes zero. And that's what humans do. That's that's the is this 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 difference between possibility and probability is very difficult for people. I think to to to, to effectively work with, and I, I think it causes lots of bad decisions. It's kind of like uh, you know you go see a Super Bowl where the coach at the last you know ten seconds makes a call, and it doesn't work, but. From a betting perspective, it was absolutely the right call from an odd standpoint. Or during uh, the, uh, the Hillary Clinton election and Trump, and he said, well, Donald Trump has a 30% chance. And everybody's instantly said that's zero. And that's, that probably highlights this idea between probability and possibility better and how people have a difficult time dealing with these events. And something that's somewhat related, um, there's a guy named Ken French. He's a financial researcher. And I was watching a conference one time with him, and he was talking about how one of the mistakes people make is they evaluate the quality of their decisions based on the outcome. And he was saying uh, just a simple example of why that's not the appropriate way to assess the quality of your decision. In fact, it's they like, call it in gambling resulting. Exactly. So it's, it's equivalent to saying, 
Um, I went to the casino. I bet all of my money on black on a roulette table, and I, I hit it, and I you know had huge winnings. Therefore, it was a good decision. It's like, no, that was a terrible decision. It just worked out. And the flip side can be true, too, where you choose not to do something, and it turns out <laughs> that that it, had you done that, you would have profited, you know, handsomely. And so I think that plays a, a significant role in investing too, where sometimes there are decisions that are prudent, but by following the prudent course of action, you actually end up being worse off, at least temporarily up to this point. And an example is one of my oh. friends who's a financial advisor. His wife works for a Salesforce company. And he was telling her, you know, she gets Salesforce stock periodically. We should sell this. It's getting to be a big portion of our portfolio. And just for diversification purposes, we should sell it. And then, of course, Salesforce stock just continues doing amazing over this time frame. And she jokingly says, I'm going to fire you as my financial advisor. But he's just saying the example is, look, that was the right decision. Just because Salesforce happened to do well, it doesn't mean it wasn't possible that they did horrible. But this is what's so difficult about being your own investor is because we have to constantly fight this universal uh, tendency to blow ourselves up. And it's just because there's so many of these overriding emotional thoughts in our brain that, I, I, you know, you don't have to hire us as your financial advisor. But if I was retired, I swear on anybody's life, even mine, that <laughs> if someone came to me and said, what's the best thing I could do if I'm heading into retirement? I'd say, go find a really competent, sensible uh, retirement planner and financial advisor. You'll, you'll have a much different outcome. I don't know about your performance. I don't know about the results. But you'll have a much better uh, retirement than the people that don't. Yes, Fred, do you have anything in the last 30 seconds or so? Well, just a second. I, the same thing is true with uh, pension funds. If a pension fund is exceeding its benchmark by a long ways, it means something's wrong. You're happy that you're making extra, but it means you're probably taking undue risk. So the <laughs> idea of, of uh, big gains or big losses are in, the, in play in those situations. So, that's, Dave, to me, that says Fred plays, you know, he's seen the institutional billion dollars, you know, billions of dollars endowments. And that same psychological, you know, these forces are there as well as just, you know, for us people with the small amounts of money. Well, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more of Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for listening. And everybody remember the great Jim Turpin. I surely will. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station. 